Sometimes faith can feel as cold as winter, and it can look as dark as winter too. I grew up in the cold in Wisconsin, so I understand being physically cold. But I also understand being spiritually cold, feeling distant from God because of depression, because of sickness, because of friends dying. I feel distance from God often, and I used to fight those feelings, but now I embrace them, and I sit with them. Winter Faith has become my new home. So I created the Winter Faith Podcast because sometimes faith feels like winter. Well, welcome to the Winter Faith Show today. Your host, Andy, is here, and I'm joined by, well, I'll let you introduce yourself. Tom is your first name, but introduce yourself. Sure. My formal name is Thomas J. Ord, but yeah, please just call me Tom. Uh, I'm a theologian, I'm a philosopher, a scholar of multidisciplinary studies, which basically means I ask big questions and I'm not afraid to go anywhere to find the good answers. Mm -hmm. Um, I write a lot of books. I direct a doctoral program in open relational theology. And um, I'm married, have three daughters, grandchild. Probably the thing that's most important about me, however, is that um, more than anything else, I want to live a life of love. Mm. That's my primary purpose and goal in life. And um, everything, in, at least it, I attempt to have everything revolve around that at the center. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, so where, where do you direct your um, doctoral program? Uh, North Wind Theological Seminary. It's, uh, we followed the Oxford method, which uh, means that I work directly one-on-one with students. And it's a fully online program, which means students don't have to travel. Um, yeah. And it's a great, great, great thing. It's, it's fun working with people on things that matter a ton. Mm-hmm. And so I think I um, first ran across you when you were um, um, advertising a book that you um, just wrote, and it was on a it was a really reasonable price <laughs> on Amazon. Good. You know, uh, for what was it like six dollars? I want people to buy it. The your um, I might be getting the title wrong, but like an open relational um, theology. And yeah. <clears throat> so tell us about um, the book, and then we'll we'll get into it. Uh, Open and Relational Theology, the book, is uh, an introduction to this particular way of thinking aimed at people who don't have theology degrees. Uh, A lot of people Mm -hmm. have written on open theism or process theology or relational theology, but they aim it for graduate students or, you know, people with PhDs. And um, there's a lot of really important ideas in this general camp of open relational theology and I wanted to write a book that brought those ideas down to the masses using stories and illustrations and language that uh, most people can understand. Yeah. And you, t- you talk about um, in your intro or the first chapter, just, hey, we're going to get into some pretty like deep and dark things that might be kind of traumatic to, to read about. Why did you, um, I get the, you know, that, that caught my attention. Why did you think that was so important to to start that off, getting that in the intro like that. 
well, sometimes life sucks. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes horrific things happen. And right. I don't mean, you know, people, you know, uh, getting a hangnail. I mean, people being tortured, raped, abused, right. genocide. Uh, mm -hmm. People get diseases and the usual ways of addressing those just don't satisfy me. You know, people will say, you know, God's got a plan or God's doing this to teach you a lesson or God's punishing you or, or if they've thought about how bad the usual answers it, it are, they'll kind of just play a mystery card. Well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. And um, I find none of those answers helpful. And open and relational theology is well known for taking those difficult answers by the horns, the bull by the horns, you might say, and uh, offering actual answers to them. Uh, things that make sense, that fit with at least the majority of scripture and uh, fit with contemporary science, philosophy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What... Um... What do you think got you on this journey first? You know, I, I think I learned about, I mentioned this to you. I learned about the idea of open um, theology, relational theology, open theism, um, that way of thinking about God by uh, reading a um, commentary on Exodus by Terrence Fretheim. And um, he was saying things in this Exodus commentary that I'd never heard said about God before. And I still remember I was a junior in college and just, I mean, I just like, I was like, yes, like I, I get this, like, this makes sense to me. Um, and you know, I, I think I would label myself an open theist if, if you had to label me something. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, Stone Campbell people, we don't like labeling stuff. Too much. <laughs> That's you know, right. We just gotta <laughs> go with, you know, the, the wind that day. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's when I first, you know, and I don't know if even front time would say, you know, or would he have said about himself since he's passed now um, that he was an open theist, but it was like somebody introduced him as he has like open theist leaning. So I was just curious how you personally got in, got into it. Well, into I think that way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, I think like most people, I was asking questions when I was very young and um, you know, one of the big questions was the problem of evil why right. doesn't a loving and powerful God stop the pointless pain and unnecessary suffering in the world? And for a while, the free will defense was like my best attempt to giving an answer to that. And I still think that gives us a partial answer, but not a full answer. Can you um, review that real quick? Just for people. Sure. Maybe yeah. Think, yeah. So I think most people get the notion that uh, a loving God would want to stop evil if this God were able to do so. At least most people want to think that. Right. And so the problem of evil is if God is so loving and so powerful, then why doesn't God just stop the genuine evils of the world? Maybe not all suffering, but the stuff that has no point, that is unnecessary. And one of the common responses has been, well, Humans have free will. They use that free will wrongly, and um, they're to blame for evil. And the problem with that approach, of course, is that um, if we think God has the kind of power to momentarily take away free will to stop, let's say, someone from torturing a child, wouldn't a loving God take away momentarily the free will and prevent that torture? Or, you know, you can think of a right. thousand sure. different 
uh, yeah. possibilities. Um, and then there's some evils that come that you're facing right now in your own life that right. wasn't anyone's free will. There are natural evils, diseases, there are chance happenings, there are pandemics that doesn't look like anybody freely committed some wrong for these evils to occur. So why wouldn't mm -hmm. God stop those, prevent those? Right. Right. And um, at least some, well, I'll tell you what, instead of talking about, instead of speaking for all open and relational thinkers, I'll speak yeah, for yeah. myself, okay? <laughs> um, I simply think God can't single-handedly right. prevent the evils of the world. It isn't that God is up on Mars, you know, just sort of a hands-off policy. I think God is really active and right. moving everywhere all the time, but God is inherently uncontrolling. And that's why God can't prevent evils single-handedly. Okay. I haven't heard that before. God is inherently uncontrolling. Can you break that down? Yeah. So the idea is that God, at love comes first in God's nature, logically first, we might say. Okay. And this love is self-giving and others empowering. And because God must love, because that's God's very nature, then God, and this love is self-giving and others empowering, God simply can't control those whom, to whom God gives freedom, agency, existence, etc., and so a lot of free will theists, they'll say, well, God gives freedom to humans, maybe to elephants, chimps, and dogs, uh, but they're not willing to say that, you know, bacteria have agency or something like that. Mm -hmm. My view says God not only gives freedom to complex agency agents, but also gives the capacity to act and respond even to cells, amoeba, even down to the quarks. I like to put it in a kind of pithy way. Mm -hmm. God loves everyone and everything. So God can't control anyone or anything. Right. So the idea is like true love. And I think this is what I connected to a lot when I was reading um, the suffering of God is like for God to love, he has to be able to suffer. God, I won't always say he, but God yeah. always has to be able to suffer because like, I always say like grief is love. Love is grief. Like the ability to suffer is what gives us the ability to love. So if God can't do that, I really think that takes away my relationship with God. Am I tracking with you a little bit with that? Yeah, that's definitely one portion of it. That's um, that part okay. of, the, of the argument we usually call God's relationality or passability. And so okay. the idea would be that, um, a relational theologian, which all open relational thinkers are relational theologians, they would say God is really affected or influenced yes. by what happens in the world. And that includes yes. suffering when there's pain, but it also includes joy when good things happen. But God is really uh, influenced because God is in a genuine, genuine relationship with us and with all creation. So what would, what would another, you said that was one part of it. What would some other parts of it be? Yeah. So the other part in under open relational is the idea that God experiences time somewhat like we do. So, you know, a lot of thinkers, Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, they thought of God as kind of standing outside of time as timeless and seeing all history all at once. And, 
Um, this is not a biblical idea. It comes more from Neoplatonic philosophy than anywhere else. Right. But um, they thought God somehow transcended and stood outside of time. Those of us in the openness or open relational camp think that God really experiences time moment by moment. So the past is really past for God. The present is really the present. And the future is not yet, hasn't yet occurred. There really is no future because it's not a thing that exists yet. And so God also faces an open future, just like you and I do. Mm. That means, for instance, and this is one of the controversial parts of it, that God knows everything that's possible to happen in the future, but God can't know with absolute certainty everything that will happen because it hasn't yet happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and I would say, let's get into scripture a little bit. So, yeah. you know, there's things where you read in scripture where, um, you know, how many righteous, oh man, wow. I have an MDiv and I'm <laughs> getting this. So um, is it Noah that argues with God? How, yeah. How many, how many righteous people are on the uh, Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Oh my righteousness. Goodness. Yeah, right, I'm definitely right. gonna. I gotta edit that out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But you so, know, the Noah uh, story is a really good example. However, you know, Noah. Yeah, maybe we'll get into both oh, of them. So start with Noah. I say, actually, I meant to say Jonah. Sorry. Oh, Jonah. Yeah. Let's start with Jonah. All right. <laughs> okay. Sure. Let's do it. Um, the Jonah story. Jonah finally gets spit out of the fish. God tells him to go to Nineveh. That was the whole reason he was, you know, God had this, this message to tell the people of Nineveh. Right. And the message is God is going to destroy them because they're so wicked. And Mm -hmm. Jonah is happy to tell this message because Jonah hates those Ninevites. Well, according to the story, the king of Nineveh says, Hey, maybe if we change our ways, if we repent, if we put on sackcloth and ashes, maybe we won't be destroyed. And the book of Jonah ends with the writer saying, God repented and didn't destroy right. them. Right. So you've got a notion in which God says to, jo- to, to uh, Jonah, I'm going to do something. And that sounds like God knows what the future is going to be. And mm-hmm. then the people respond by saying, oh, maybe if we change our, our ways, God will have a change of mind. And God does, which sounds like the future is really open, even for God. And God can have a change of plans depending on what creatures do. Yeah. And I would say we see multiple examples of that in scripture. Oh yeah. Where, where God is repenting, where God is um, changing his mind. Yeah, over um, 40 times in the Old Testament. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, 40 times. Now, you know, there's also things in Scripture, and I feel like, you know, you can help me out here, where it seems like, oh, everything definitely is mapped out. Um, and I'm trying to think of those texts. <laughs> I yeah. guess like Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Yeah, well, a lot of people will will read a text that says, I know the plans I have for you, mm-hmm. plans to prosper you, yada, yada, yada. Yes. And they'll think that means, well, that means the future has already been decided. Right. But of course, we all can make plans for the future and then change those plans, right? You know, you can sure. say, hey, I'm planning to go on summer vacation to Disneyland and then say, oh, Florida in the summer? No, thank you. I'm going to go mm-hmm. to Minnesota instead. <laughs> well, 
why can't God do the same thing? And in open theology view, God can make a, uh, have a change of plans. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is, of course, if God's plans are to prosper us and God's a God of love, we can say that's always God's plan. God always wants right. to, you know, promote our well-being. Um, so there are some kind of plans that are general enough to apply to every kind of situation. Right. Yeah. And I think, so if we're looking at that, would you say, so you listed, okay, there's over 40 times God makes some kind of change of mind or isn't it um, in the, in the Exodus story with Moses, isn't it, doesn't it say it, he changes his heart? Some of them will say that. Yeah. yeah which I, I'm sure there's, I do not know all the history of the, the, the Hebrew word that is yeah. there, but um, I'm sure there's, stuff written about what heart means in that context. But, um, you know, so there's stuff like that, which I always, um, I always found comfort in this idea of like, okay, God is, if God truly is with me and the future is a lot more open, um, then it's not maybe not mapped out, um, not predetermined. Right then I right. find a lot of comfort in a God that is with me going through that with me. Like, like, I, you know, like this past um, week, you know, a diagnosed with cancer. Like, I feel like God is with me. I don't think God caused it. I don't think God planned it, but God is with me. And I find comfort in that. I think that what people, and I'll let you go here. I've been talking a little bit, but like what people struggle with um, is this idea of like how much power then does God actually have? Because I don't want to believe in a God that doesn't have power. Like, that's the whole point (laughs) is that somebody's in charge. Somebody's in control. Somebody has power. And it's not me. It's somebody who's benevolent and loving in an ideal way or in the negative way. Like, oh, this God has power and he wants to punish me. Like, yeah, that's (laughs) that's a bad thing. And we don't want that kind of power. So I think that, you know, I think people can definitely, you know, wrestle with scripture and, and stuff that's there you know, does this actually mean this? Is this just metaphor when God changes his mind? Does he actually change his mind? But, um, but this idea of like, how much power does God have? Is that, do you think the biggest holdup for people, even more so than the futures mapped out or not mapped out? Oh, I think it is. Yeah. I yeah. think the default position for most people is that God has the kind of power that God can do anything God wants to do. Right. The classic language is omnipotent. That word yes. isn't in the Bible, right. but that's the word that theologians have used for a long time. Um, I, however, have a very different view. I think there are things God simply can't do. And in fact, I have biblical support for this idea. For instance, the writer of Hebrews says God can't tell a lie. The mm-hmm. psalmist says God can't grow tired. Uh, James says God can't be tempted, and there are others. Right. The one I like the best actually comes from uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. He says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So the idea is that there are certain things about God's nature that even God can't change. God is powerless to change them, you might say. Yeah, and the my- faithfulness is the biggest one. That's all right. Right, right. Yeah. God can't be unfaithful according to scripture, which is another way of saying God can't change God's character or nature or something like that. 
And what I've proposed is that God's character or nature is first and foremost love. So that means God can't decide, you know, that loving Andy, I don't really enjoy that anymore. I'm going to stop loving Andy. Mm -hmm. Nope. It's God's very heart. God's very nature. God loves everyone and everything. And that means promoting or wanting the best for everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. And so that, in my view, should make us rethink the usual ways people have thought about God's power. You know, 99% of Christian theologians and philosophers, they will say God can't do what's illogical. God can't make a rock so big, even God mm. can't lift it, or yeah, God yeah. can't make two plus two equal 397 or whatever. Sure. Um, I'm going a little further than that by saying there's other things God can't do because to do them, God would have to not be God. God would have to go against God's own nature. And one of those things that I'm claiming is that God can't control others. And that flies in the face of how most people have thought about God. I mean, some of our Calvinist friends, let's say John Piper, mm -hmm. you know, he, he thinks God controls everything. Right. Uh, that's a hardcore predestinationist view. But a lot of our more Arminian kind of friends or Wesleyan or Stone Campbell folks, they'll say, well, God's not in control in the sense that God controls everything. But God sometimes controls certain situations if they're really important maybe for a healing or to resurrect Jesus or for a miracle or something. Mm -hmm. The problem with that view is that you wonder why God doesn't do it a whole lot more often <laughs> to prevent the crap that happens in the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how, so I guess the big thing is looking at like Arminian versus open. How right. do we figure out the differences? What yeah. would you say? I would say there are two big differences. The first big difference has to do with God's knowledge. Most Arminians, not all, but most Arminians think that God, in some mysterious way, God knows everything that's going to happen in the future as if it's already occurred. Open theists say that's just not possible. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. The second one has to do with how they think about God's power. And here, open theists have various views. My view has said that God simply can't control others. And a lot of Arminians, they don't want to go quite that far. The problem, of course, is that they believe in a God who could and sometimes does control. And so then we have to ask, well, well then why doesn't God stop cancer, right. rape, torture, etc.? Yeah, and that, to me, that the I, I'm totally tracking with you with this idea of like, okay, then you would think, I would think God would step in way more than God actually does. If God yeah. were able. Yeah. 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 If God were able to, which is what um, Arminian is saying, uh, Arminius thought, free will thought um, can, you know, maybe more main, mainline. I don't know if it's mainline, but um, um, just that idea of like, why wouldn't God stop things more like genocide, the Holocaust, you know, right. the pandemic, um, you know, throw in any horrible event. There's a lot of to choose from. Um, what do we do? What do you do with, and this is, I think some of my biggest things, like, I think I'm fine with all that. I just wonder about, okay, like the role of Jesus and the role of end times and the role of heaven, like, isn't that 
predetermined? Like, can I just be like, okay, I know not everything's predetermined and he doesn't step in, God doesn't step <laughs> in all, but like, this seems pretty determined, right? Like, does that, I think that's always been my thing. And I'm excited to yeah. talk to you about that. Cause I'm like, what do I do with, yeah. Like the end, end times and um, not like end times and time, but just like the idea of heaven seems very determined in my mind. Yeah. So is are you is, saying the idea that God knows or God decides who goes to heaven and who doesn't is already been decided or used to no, just mean no, not that, that there is a heaven? Yeah, that 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 at least one part where God is stepping in and controlling history is with oh. like Jesus, the resurrection, and um maybe a better way to say it is like Jesus coming seems very determined and Jesus's purpose seems very determined. Yeah. And um, his life seems very determined, like determined as in not like he's determined, but like it's plan. It's very, very planned out and that can't change. And um, and that is the idea of like salvation. So not so much heaven and who goes and who don't, but like the idea of um, salvation in terms of like God's power, maybe. Maybe that's what I'm getting. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm getting at. I think even Arminians don't want to say salvation is determined by God's power. Okay. Take, take one of my theological heroes, John Wesley. Sure. John Wesley says, God will not save us without ourselves. And by that, he means God okay. won't save us unless we respond freely right. to God's call. So that right. means that our salvation isn't entirely in God's hands. It is God who initiates salvation offers it, provides it, but we have to accept, respond. Mm -hmm. We have a role to play there. Um, so yeah, who goes to heaven or final salvation hasn't been already decided. Right. It isn't God alone who decides. Mm -hmm. Now there's another question related to this that I kind of thought you were going toward and maybe you okay. are, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not hearing it, but um, okay. there are some people who say, okay, I get that you and I can decide whether or not we want to find salvation in this life and the next, but what about some kind of final victory? Does God guarantee? I think that's what I'm getting at. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. That's a good okay. way of saying it. A final victory, a final, that's what I was trying to get at. Like salvation is his is God's. Yeah. Let's go with yeah. that. I like that. That that's, that's resonates with me. Open and relational theologians have differing views on this. So let me just show you my own view and you mm -hmm. can critique it. All right. <laughs> and let me come get to my view by looking at three other views first before I tell you mine. Okay. Okay. The one view is uh, we'll call it the traditional heaven and hell view, even though it's not really strongly supported by the Bible. You know, it's the one the person on the street knows. The good people go to heaven. God sends the bad people to eternal conscious torment in hell. Right. I don't believe in that. Um, most open relational thinkers, in fact, I can't think of any open relational thinker who believes in the traditional idea of hell. Okay. But there are some who believe in annihilation. And that's the view that God either actively destroys the unrepentant after they die or passively just fails to resurrect them. But uh, the unrighteous, somehow uh, God just eliminates them. I'm against that view because it presents a God who gives up. 
<laughs> it presents yeah. a God whose love doesn't, uh, isn't forever, isn't steadfast. <laughs> um, and I think God's love never stops loving anyone or anything. Third alternative I'll call classical universalism. You can get this from Karl Barth, a version of it, and David Bentley Hart and some others. And this version says that God has got the kind of power to either at the end unilaterally send everyone to heaven, universally, you know, everybody goes to heaven, or God has the kind of power to create from nothing creatures who will end up in heaven, even though they currently don't look like they're going that way. That's more like David Bentley Hart's view. So that classical universalism says everybody's going to get there eventually um, because God's got the kind of power to make that happen. The problem with that view is that if God's got that kind of power, then why doesn't God use it right now to prevent the crap that's happening in the world? Right. Yeah. Plus, it kind of undermines any ultimate significance for our decisions. Like right now, I'm trying to change my lifestyle because of climate change. And it's no fun. Like, <laughs> I don't enjoy doing all the extra things I do to uh, try to make the world, the planet safer and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, if I thought everyone was going to heaven, no matter what they did, why would I care about making sacrifices right, right. now? Like, you know, sure. I just say, live and let live. See you all in the next life. We're all going there, you know? Right. Um, so my view, we'll call it the fourth one. I call it the relentless love view. It says that God always invites us to salvation now and after we die. And God never stops inviting. Now we can say no to God and there are natural negative consequences to saying no to God. I don't believe in a spanking kind of God who, you know, punishes people, but I do think there are just natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love. But what makes my view different is that God never gives up on anybody. Mm. That means that I don't have the guarantee that everyone will say yes to God, because theoretically, at least everyone could continue to say no, or at least mm -hmm. some could continue to say no. Right. But I have the real hope that God will eventually uh, convince everyone to say yes. So I've got a hopeful view, but not a kind of guarantee that could only come from a kind of omnipotent God. Yeah, I mean, that that's really good. I really appreciate you going through kind of the history of options. And I think I'll probably have to re-listen sure. <laughs> <laughs> to get all of it in there. But yeah, the um, open and relational theology and introduction to life-changing ideas. I'm so thankful um, for your time, Tom. And I want everybody to go get the book on Amazon. It's very affordable. I don't know. Will the price jump back up to the normal I think price? it's already jumped up. So it might be a little too late. <laughs> it's still late. very affordable. It's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not like right. it's, it's a very affordable book. And, yeah. and I think it's so practical. And so I think I wanted to end with why I think open relational theology is so practical. And this is very true to my heart and my um, life right now, just being diagnosed with cancer, is that um, this idea of what an open relational theology does to my relationship with God in terms of prayer, mm. um, that if the future is not mapped out, if God is an open and relational God um, that is with me, then that really makes prayer even more special to me. Mm -hmm. um, that is something I've always connected with from the first time I ever read 
the suffering of God, you know, a God that suffers with a God that suffers, um, for, um, you know, and, and that idea of like, God is with me. And I think that's something that I see in scripture and it's certainly something I see in the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what for you is just this, and in your book is very practical. Like you said, you want this book to be not just for people like us <laughs> who yeah. went to school. You want this to be for people that are practically dealing with the difficulties of living in this world and the problems that they see. So what is the, the really practical things for you? Um, in terms of prayer? Yeah, I think for me it's prayer, but I'm just wondering just yeah. in general, just open relational theology. How is it practical for you? I think if you don't mind, I'd like to answer that question by giving you another typology of prayer. Is that all right? Absolutely. <laughs> There's some people who think that God predestined everything from the foundation of the world. Yep. Now, if you think that's the case, why in the world would you get motivated to pray that you would be healed from your cancer? Because that's already been decided by God from the beginning. Whether or right. not you get better or get worse has been predecided. Why would I try either? Like exactly, why, it's why already would been. I try? Yeah, and if you did try, you'd say, "Well, God determined that I tried." If you decided not to try, you say, "Well, God predetermined that." So, like, it's a fatalist view. Yes. Very few people, even hardcore Calvinists, actually live their lives and pray like they're hardcore determinists. That's right. The second category, the second way of thinking about prayer is a more of an Arminian one. And it says this, God has the kind of power to heal you from cancer single-handedly if God wants to. Now think about that a second. If God is perfectly loving and God can do whatever God wants to do, no matter if you pray or not, and God's a whole lot smarter than you are, Why would you be motivated to pray for healing? God already loves you. God can do everything God wants to do single-handedly, heal you or not. In fact, it sounds as if that God, if God is asking you to pray, is kind of sitting back, arms folded, saying, come on, Andy, you got to ask me 93 times (laughs) before I get off my butt and help you out. Right. Right. Let's put this on the prayer chain. And if you don't get 150 people praying, well, then I'm not going to lift a finger well that's not a picture of a loving god right that doesn't make any sense no so a lot of christians see those two options and they revert to a third position and i hear this more in like liberal churches this is the idea that prayer doesn't change god it only changes me Mm -hmm. so the idea is you pray but you don't expect to be to affect god at all but you think that it might help you like positive vibes or, you know, get your priorities straight or humble you or whatever. It's a sort of a character building kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I think prayer as described in scripture is a lot more than just that. Uh, I do think prayer can help us personally, but I also think it has a real effect on God. So here's the fourth option. Again, this is the option I want to recommend. Um, and it's in a couple of my books, if you want to go into details. Absolutely. It's, it says, it, it sort of rests on three ideas. First of all, God is relational. And everything we do, including prayer, has a real influence on God. Second thing it says is that we live in an interrelated universe, that 
means that our actions not only affect our bodies, but also those outside of us. And so uh, in an interrelated universe, our actions really matter. The third thing it says, because it's an open theism view, it says that God experiences time moment by moment. And that means that our prayers in one moment have an effect on God and on the world such that in the next moment, God now has new data, new relational um, experiences, new avenues and, op and opportunities might open up for God to act in ways that wouldn't have been possible had we not prayed in the previous moment. It doesn't mean that our prayer somehow turbocharge God to control the situation. So, you know, like, it's not that God saying, you know, I'd like to heal you from cancer right now. But, uh, and, and once you pray, all of a sudden I can do that. I mean, if that was the case, then like, again, we would expect a lot more healings, right? right. But it is the case that your prayers affect God, your body and others, such that the next moment, something new is in the arena of life that God can respond to and use. And then God brings in more information. And some of that stuff can be what physicians do. Some of it can be stuff family members do. Some of it can be just getting good rest. There's all kinds of things that God brings together in the kind of healing work that God wants to do. But God can never single-handedly stamp, you know, do the healing always working with us, our prayers and circumstances to try to bring the healing God wants to bring. Yeah. And what I hear is that, um, and I think I got this from Fret Time and, and um, I'm referencing him a lot, but that's just my biggest influence. Oh, he's a in great, this, great person. Yeah. In this area is that God and humanity through prayer and actions and decisions shape the future together to bring yes. about good in the world. That's right. And I That's totally right. can track with that. And I can track with how, oh, that doesn't always go that way. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Yep. And then there is some randomness. And so I like, to me, I find a lot of value in my prayers matter and yep. my actions matter and yep. God seems to matter more. Right. Oh, definitely. Yes. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time on this Friday afternoon to really dive into some deep um, subjects. And I'm going to put in the show notes um, all your books. And um, yeah, I hope that I hope that people really dive into that. I know I have some friends that I would love for them to dive into your work and just have them wrestle with it. So thanks for the opportunity, Andy. I enjoyed the yeah. conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this show today, everybody. I just want to give a few shout-outs. Today's music, the one and only Josh Cleveland. Today's artwork and all the Winter Faith artwork and digital design, Dominique Montaigne. The intro was done by Scarlet Fox. And I am just grateful to be creating and editing this podcast. My name is Andy Frazier. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Winter faith podcast subscribe subscribe on all those platforms and also we are on patreon if you would like to support the show and also leave a review on itunes at the winter faith podcast thanks for listening and we will see you next week